encouraged, strengthened in their faith because of the wonderful truth of the ascension. I pray that we would continue to, Lord, hear from your spirit as you guide us and direct us into your truth right now as we prepare to study your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, why don't we uh, prepare to look at God's word? We're going to look at Hebrews 13. We're going to finish the book today. Um, And since Rob is coming back in the room, I'm just going to point out that the song we just sang said, when the race is complete, when the the, the race is complete. I I just thought I'd I'd put that out out there. Yeah. Um, we have, um, we, we are concluding today a 45 week study of Hebrews. That's, that's how many weeks we've actually studied this book. We've, we've, we started it a year and a half ago, but obviously we take lots of breaks. We took a summer series in the Psalms last year. We took a Christmas series and we have various teachings throughout, but in terms of the whole 45 weeks, less than a year, we've been studying this, this book and what an amazing book it has been. And I can tell you that your pastor has grown a lot from my study of it and preparation of it. I hope that you have too. The last four studies consisted of instruction on practical Christian living. And um, we looked at these questions. What must our conduct be on this earth as Christians, um, knowing all these wonderful truths? And we looked at our conduct in relation to others, that we're to love others, but also that we're um, to conduct ourselves in a certain way. And we looked at some very important topics there. And last week, we looked at our conduct in, in, in terms of just our religious practice. And if you were here last week, you might remember that the author ended with a command that the church members respond to its leaders with uh, obedience and submission. And he gave some reasons here I wanted to recap, because the church leaders watch out for your souls. It's an amazing, again, humbling thing to think about, that leaders of the church watch out for the souls of their saints there. Also, leaders are accountable to God. We'll give an answer to God for how well we cared for his people. And leaders receive joy when the flock is submissive and obedient to his word and the instruction given. And when the leaders receive joy, then the church receives joy as well. And there's this wonderful sort of synergy taking place. There's a a mutual spirit of humility and love which must be present in both the church leaders and the church members. And when there is, there is great joy for both. And there's really clearly a deep, humble love that the author here has for these Jews that he's been writing to. And so he's just going to give us some closing requests and remarks, which really, I think, highlight their relationship. And his requests are simple. They're straightforward. He's going to have a request for prayer, a request for power, a request for perseverance, and we'll look at these things. So let me just read the passage to begin with. We are in um, verse 18, and we're going to go all the way to 25. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words, Know that our brother Timothy has been set free with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. God, again, we just want to come to you and thank you again for the opportunity to look at the final words of this this letter to these these Hebrews, Lord. We just pray that you would um, just uh, pull out for us all these rich, wonderful little bits that um, uh, are given to us here at the end, Lord. These, these final requests by this, this man who loves these people so much, Lord. And may you open up our hearts for what you want us to take away today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. Okay, well, we're going to jump into it. Basically, we just have some closing requests. That's what we're looking at, some closing requests, things he's asking from his people. And the first is this. It's a request for prayer. Prayer. You know, prayer is one of the highest priorities of the church. You might notice I said one of. Um, you have to think back to the uh, early days of the church when the church was just founded and it began to just to explode and expanded at such a rate that they began to experience some issues. You might remember this. The Hellenists, which are Greek-speaking Jews, began to complain to the disciples um, because their widows were, um, they felt at least, not receiving an equal portion of the food that the disciples were distributing to the needs of, of, of the community there. And so rather than give up uh, their time of prayer and their time of ministering to the word, they came up with a plan. And in Acts chapter 6, verses 3 to 4, seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually, and here it is, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Prayer and the ministry of the word make up the two highest priorities of the church. Yes, care was important and care was being provided for, but note what the disciples said. We cannot, we cannot neglect prayer and ministry in favor of care. And so instead, they sort of chose to divide and conquer. Let's get seven other men filled with the Holy Spirit who will look over the care of the people so we can devote ourselves, notice what it says, continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And here, the author requests that the church pray for him. Now, we are exhorted to, to pray for all men. We're, we're exhorted to pray for all who are in authority. And there are several reasons I want to give for prayer. And the first is this, that prayer is expected of us. It's expected of the church, that the church be a people of, of prayer, that we know how to pray, not that there's a particular formula, but that we're so used to coming to Christ, so used to giving him petition that it's not really hard to pray, that we can pray. And sometimes that means it takes practice, doesn't it? But it is, it is expected of us. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, I just want to point out this verse. It says this, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. We're told here that we need to pray for everyone. And he specifically mentions, and even those kings, you think about the people who are ruling at this time. I mean, who wanted to pray for Nero, okay? But they had to pray for those who were in authority. Why? Because then that meant they were trusting in God, right? He's the one that ultimately raises up kings for his purpose. And he says, if you do this, then you're going to have a quiet and you're going to have a peaceable life and you can live in godliness and, and reverence. And so we're expected to pray for all men. We're expected to pray for everyone in authority. So that is expected of the church. And the author here, he expected prayer from them. But that's not the reason he gives. I just wanted to give that one. But the author gives a specific reason here. And he says this, we are confident, we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. The reason he gives here for prayer is that it's deserved, that he actually deserves the prayer from the church. Now, notice what he mentions. He mentions a conscience. We are confident we have a good conscience. What's a conscience? It's not little Jimmy Cricket on your shoulder. I know the, that's a Disney picture, okay? But, but everyone has a conscience. Whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, everyone has a conscience. It's a God-given faculty implanted in you that helps you to determine right from wrong. Everyone has that. And you might be looking at the world today going, really? Everyone has a conscience? Because it looks to me like some people's consciences have just gone out the door. Listen, everyone has a conscience. An unbeliever has a conscience, but it's defiled. It's a defiled conscience. We're, we're, we're actually born with that conscience to a degree. 
But the more that we sin and ignore the truth of God's word, the direction that he has really designed us to go, the more defiled our conscience becomes. Titus 1.15 says this, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. Everything is defiled. And the more you live in that state and continue to sin and continue to rebel against God, the Bible gives this picture of searing our conscience with a hot iron. It says you deaden the nerves. There's no longer sending the right and wrong impulses to you because it's no longer informed by God. But as we have read in Hebrews for believers, for us here, the blood of Jesus cleansed our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's what we've studied in chapter 9. So as a Christian, our conscience actually is purified. We have a purified conscience. It doesn't mean we do everything right but the Holy Spirit helps us to determine right and wrong and also to honestly evaluate ourselves, to honestly look at ourselves regarding our conduct. And the author here is, is saying this, I can honestly say, say I am confident that we have a good conscience. We've had a good conscience before you. And he believed that he had served his people well, desiring to live honorably, he says. And this is not really anything new. Paul did the same thing. Paul commended his conscience to the Corinthians. You might remember this. It's actually in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. He says, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we endured, uh, sorry, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. So not only could Paul declare the testimony of his own conscience here, he says, we've conducted ourselves in a, a simple way, in a godly way, in a sincere way. We didn't use the, the fleshly wisdom of the world. We used godly wisdom. We did this. But he also called upon the conscience of the Corinthians. He says, well, you can determine that with your own conscience because your conscience can determine between right and wrong. And he does that in, in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, in verse 2. He says, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He says, You can determine that. We didn't conduct ourselves deceitfully. We taught you the truth of God's word. Your conscience can testify to that. And so if the, the Holy Spirit is in you, then he has cleansed your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And your conscience knows the difference between a dead work and a living one. Amazing, isn't it? And he knows that in your life, you should know that, and the leaders should know that. Spiritual leaders who have conducted themselves honorably, properly caring for your souls then, deserve your prayers. They need your prayers. Prayer for the leader is expected, it's deserved, but... The need is the next one. It's desperately needed. It's desperately needed that you pray for us. In verse 19, he says this, but I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. He didn't, he didn't just say, oh, you know, I hope you get around to praying me one time. I urge you to pray for me. Prayer is needed. He desired prayer here in order that he might be restored to them. Now, we don't really know for sure what the deal is, where the author was, why he, why he couldn't come to them. Perhaps it suggested he was in prison. I don't think so. You'll see a little bit later why. But he was certainly in chains at one point. Because in, in chapter 10, you might remember, he said, you had compassion on me in my chains. So he certainly was in prison at a, a certain point. And if he was in chains at this point, then he did, did desperately need, his, need the prayers of the saints. Um, do you remember back in Acts chapter uh, 2, Herod started to persecute the disciples. In fact, he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that that pleased the Jews, then he went further. He said, oh, well, great, this is working out. I'll kidnap Peter. I'll take him into prison. And so Peter was arrested as, as well. Um, and so we're given this amazing account in Acts chapter 12, verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but notice this, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. 
I would hope that if these doors were to burst open and we would be raided by the police for some reason and your pastor would be dragged away in chains, that the first thing you would do would begin to pray for me. <laughs> and not just a one-off, that there'd be constant prayer for me and your leaders because I'm taking them with me. But uh, that, they're like, wait, what? It's in the T and C's. Peter, Peter, Peter was arrested and, and what are they doing? Constantly praying for him all the time. And what happened? That's a dramatic story when you read about it. The angel of the Lord, he appears next to Peter, and then, and then he hits him, right? smacks him. Hey, get up. Um, amazing, partly because Peter just could not figure out if this was a vision, if this was real. I mean, it really didn't come to him until he was out the door, down the street. He was, okay, this is happening. I've escaped prison. The angel led him out. They come to the house of Mary, the mother of John, John Mark, and um, we're told there that many were gathered together there praying. The angel led him to the very house where all the saints were praying. Peter's release from prison was a direct result of prayer. You might remember Daniel also experienced an amazing answer to prayer. I love that story. He was mourning and he was fasting for, for three weeks. And then, and then an angel suddenly appears to him. And in Daniel chapter 10, verse 12, we're told this. Then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come because of your words. Now, think about that for a moment. What if Daniel hadn't prayed? Because the angel just said, the reason I came was because you prayed, because of your words. Isn't that incredible? Do you think about it? what opportunities we must miss sometimes because we just don't go to prayer first? But this angel came to Daniel and said, yeah, sorry, I'm late. <laughs> you might remember why he was late. I was battling the prince of the Persia, right? He, it was a, a, a battle between an angel and a demon, which, which tells you even more. There's just a spiritual realm uh, all around us. And so it's so important that we're praying because God is sending his angels. Remember, they're ministering spirits, presence of an angel for Daniel was a direct result of his words, his prayer. So can prayer change things? You bet it can. And prayer for your leaders, those who care for your souls, is so desperately needed. There was a sermon given by Charles Spurgeon in 1855, and he said this to his people, my people, shall I ever lose your prayers? Will ye ever cease your supplications? Will ye uh, will ye then ever cease to pray? I fear ye have not uttered so many prayers this morning as ye should have done. I fear there has not been so much earnest devotion as might have been poured forth. For my own part, I have not felt the wondrous power I sometimes experience. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, he felt a difference when his church was not praying. If you think that there are times that I speak with more power than others, I'll tell you it's a direct result of prayer. Not just yours, but my own as well. I'll, I'll lump myself in there also. And I love that our, our church gathers together in the front building. We have people come forward to pray for the services before Sunday. And the reason I love that is because then I know whoever is ministering the word of God that day is being prayed for. It's so so important that they're receiving prayer. But prayer often is given a very low priority in the church. Now, I'm not talking about the, the church prayer meeting. I mean the church praying on our own. Us actually just praying, committed to, to prayer. doesn't have to be an organized meeting. We should be people of prayer. We did a prayer book with the men not long ago. Well, I guess it was long ago now because we've been in 2 Thessalonians for a decade. But it's a book by D.A. Carson called Praying with Paul. And uh, he said some hard words about prayer. Ones that I struggled with again as I read them again this week. Do you not sense with me the severity of the problem, he says? Granted that most of us know some individuals who are remarkable prayer warriors is it not nevertheless true that by and large we are better at organizing than agonizing? Better at administering than interceding? Better at fellowship 
than fasting, better at entertainment than worship, better at theological articulation than spiritual adoration, and better, God help us, at preaching than at praying. Amazing. We're about to embark upon a foundation study, and we should be bathing that in prayer. We should be bathing ahead of time all those that will be preaching in prayer. What an opportunity we have this summer to invite people who don't know anything about the Bible to come hear about the Bible, who don't know anything about Jesus to come hear about Jesus. We're taking two weeks on the Bible. We're taking three weeks on Jesus, covering his, his work, obviously his person, his work, and salvation. That's why those leaflets back there, so you can take those, put them in your Bible, and you'll, you'll know when we're teaching what we're teaching. But also, next week, I'm going to have little business card invites ready for you that have all the dates of what we're teaching. I want you to take those, and I want you to go to people and invite them to church to hear about the Bible, hear about Jesus, hear about God, hear about the church, hear about evangelism, hear about prayer. All those things will be covered. This We have a great opportunity, don't we? I've also dug out of storage as we've been clearing it out. We have all kinds of tracks, all kinds of invite things that will help people understand the truth of the gospel. I've put a few of them out there uh, today. And so you can take some of those and those invites and just give them to people. I really want to encourage you to do that, but I, I encourage you more to pray, to pray for this summer. What an opportunity we have. We need to be a, a people of, of prayer. Robert Murray McShane said, what a man is alone and on his knees before God, that he is and no more. Incredible. I need to spend more time on my knees, and probably the church does as a whole as well. The author requests prayer from his people, and so I request that you pray for myself, pray for the other elders. We need it. A second request is given here. It's a request for power. We find it in verses 20 and 21. It's given to us in a form of a wonderful, soaring benediction, I think one of the most beautiful in all of Scripture. Verses 20 and 21, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, the idea that this is a request for, for power is really coming from verse 21. I want you to look at it. He begins by saying, make you complete in every good work to do his will. And that word complete is kartartidzo, and it means to strengthen or to perfect. That's mostly how we see the word used, or to make complete, or to make one what he ought to be. It is a request that God make them what they ought to be, perfect, complete, now listen, you can have the purest doctrine, uh, you can have the, the best examples in the church, but if you don't have his power, you have nothing. You need his power. It's impossible for us to be what he wants us to be and do what he wants us to do without his power. You cannot be made complete without it. Notice he says, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Now, we just sang a whole song about that. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. It's, it's Christ who does the work in us. God working in us. And what he works in you will always be well-pleasing in his sight. God is never going to work something in you that doesn't bring him glory. It's always going to be well-pleasing. But he does it through Jesus Christ. He, he is at work in us, but we must work it out. And when we don't, then we're operating in the flesh and not the spirit. That's the working out part. Will not be well-pleasing in his sight. Paul describes it this way in Philippians 2, and this is a wonderful verse to help us understand what this is. Verses 12 to 13, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now, this sometimes is a confusing verse for people because, they, oh, I am to work for salvation. No, you're not to work for salvation. You're to work out your salvation. You have salvation. 
God has worked some amazing things inside of you. You, you, me, we have to work them out. We have to let the inward stuff that's happening inside of us because we're inwardly changed affect us outwardly. I wonder where we might have discussed that before. Maybe the last few weeks when we we'll are looking at Christian conduct, right? It's the, how does it look on the outward? It's great that we say we love the Lord. It's great, but we never see that outwardly. We never see you serving, never see you being a part of the church or doing anything, any acts of love, any acts of grace, none of those things. It's, how do you even know you're saved? It's working out what's already worked in us, and that is in obedience. The power is there. It's there. Remember the power of the resurrection? It's in there, but it's just easy to sit back and, and not utilize it, do nothing with it. So this is not a prayer for them to sit back and do nothing. It's a prayer that they proceed forward, doing his will in the power of God and in obedience to him. Christian growth and obedience are not accomplished by your own power, but his. Philippians 1.6 says this, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe in the perseverance of the saints, I... I, I I don't know what you think this verse means. I just, I don't know. If he began it in you, he is going to complete it, which means it's not, it's not hinged on you. What we are saying is that God has worked something inside of you, which is an amazing result of salvation. So use it. He wants you to use it. And when you don't, when you don't, and you start doing things, you're building with wood and hay and straw. Remember our study of Corinthians. It said build with precious materials. Because one day we're going to stand before the Bema seat, judgment seat, not judged um, because of sin. We're, we're cleansed of sin. There is no sin associated with the believer, but we'll be judged according to our works. Remember, we're his workmanship. We're a work of God. He begun a work, and he's going to complete a work. And so he requests this power. We need power for you to complete this. He requests it from God, and he references several things that bring assurance to his request. Go back to verse 20. The first is this. He says, now may the God of peace, the God of peace. So the first is his peace. Why is he referencing God as the God of peace? Actually, that's not an unusual phrase in the Bible, is it? You read Romans, you see the God of peace. You read uh, Philippians, he's the God of peace. First Thessalonians, God of peace is in there as well. But why is he referencing it here? What's his point? God's not only uh, peace himself, but he is the God of all peace. And these Jews need to remember that his request for power is from a God who gives peace. Why? What's on the horizon for this church? What's on the horizon for these Jews? Nero, persecution, real trouble for Christians. This is very similar to the message uh, to the Jews in Jeremiah's time. He, Jeremiah, well, God promised through Jeremiah that they were going to go into captivity to Babylon, but he promised that it would be shortened. And we find this in Jeremiah 29, 10 to 11. Notice what he says. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good work toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. God's ultimate thoughts for his people are of peace. When we, we look at the world around us, we look at what's happening, we don't feel very peaceful, do we? It's very unsettling to see what's happening uh, around us. Do you think those Jews who were just told that they're going to go into captivity, into Babylon for 70 years, were feeling <laughs> particularly peaceful? Probably not. But God promised that he would not forgive them. Why? Because his thoughts toward them were of peace. Remember, the captivity into Babylon was brought about by their disobedience. When we walk in obedience to God, working out what he has worked in us, we experience peace. The, the Christian life can be a wonderful life of, of peace. The problem is we usually ruin it <laughs> because we're sinful and we're fallen and we make mistakes. But remember, Jesus Christ himself promised peace for you and I, peace for his church. In John 14, 27, he left it with us. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither 
let it be afraid. That is an amazing verse. Jesus is talking to his disciples on the eve before he goes to the cross. And he says, listen, I'm going to give you something. You're going to love this. It's my peace. It's my peace. I give it to you. And obviously that comes to them ultimately in the form of the Holy Spirit in dwelling with them. We have an amazing inward peace, which means nothing that goes on in this world should rattle us. We, we should never become unstable because of what we see happening around us and lose all faith and go all over the place. We have peace promised to us. He's the God of peace. And this church needed to be reminded of that. You're going to be made complete from our God, who is a God of peace. He also references his, his power um, in this passage as well. Um, he says, it's the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead. That is some significant power. We didn't witness the creation of the world. Um, Adam didn't witness the creation of the world, but the greatest display of divine power in the history of man, the kind, was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That was some power. And Jesus reigns today, as we talked about. He's at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's still alive. He's, he's living forever. Every one of us is going to die if, if we um, tarry, if the Lord tarries, if he doesn't return before our lifespan. We don't get to enjoy an endless life, but Jesus reigns according to that power that God has, a power of an endless life. In fact, we saw this in Hebrews 7, verse 16, who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Jesus reigns forever. His, his life will never end. Remember, he's the high priest according to the order of who? Do you remember the name? Melchizedek. Melchizedek, I'll take that one. Sure. Forever forever. All these other high priests have died, but the high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, he, he's going to live forever. The power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that ascended him into the heavens, the power that seated him at the right hand of God, the power of an endless life is the same power that God uses to make you and I complete. It's, inc it's incredible. He's the God who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. But notice also, there's a third request, and it's for his provision, based off his provision, which he mentions by mentioning Jesus as that great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is the chief shepherd. And we kind of mentioned this last week. He's the chief shepherd, and myself and the elders were under shepherds. We report to the chief shepherd. And his role as a shepherd is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He's, he's meant to be seen as the great shepherd. Uh, my servant David is what he's called in Ezekiel 34, 23. God said, I will establish one shepherd over them, over Israel, and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, at the time this was written, David was long dead. So how can his servant David rule as a, a shepherd? There had to be a greater David, which, of course, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of. He is the greater David. He is the great shepherd, not just of Israel, but of his church as well. Because Jesus said that in John 10, verses 14 to 15. He said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He's our shepherd. And you know what? Did you hear? I, I know my sheep. He knows you. I know, I know that there are people here today that feel sometimes like Jesus just doesn't care about me. He doesn't know me. But he does. He knows his sheep. He knows his sheep. The question is, do you know you're a sheep? If you know you're a sheep, then you're going to know your shepherd. And guess what? You can find great peace knowing that your shepherd knows you. He knows his sheep. And guess what? He reminds what he does. I've laid down my life for the sheep. He's our shepherd, and he's the ultimate one that cares for our souls. I'm so glad about that. God provided all that we needed and will ever need in Jesus Christ. You're abundantly provided for. And Jesus, as our shepherd, laying down his life, the spilling of his precious blood, that blood established an everlasting covenant, which is the, the final thing. It's his promises. It's through the blood of the everlasting covenant, we're told in verse 20. Remember, 
all the comparisons in Hebrews. It's been a long study, I know, but we've looked at the old and the new covenants and we've compared them together. The blood of animals, the blood of animals could not cleanse from sin. It was temporary. You were going to be back there the next year offering another animal. But the blood of Jesus sacrificed for us is once for all. No other sacrifice needed. His blood inaugurated a new and better covenant. It's characterized by full forgiveness of sins. Your sins have com completely been forgiven. Past, present, and future, which is phenomenal. Now, when I sin in the future, um, which would be years from now, I'm sure, but when I sin, just kidding. When I sin, I, of course, because I know it offends my Savior, my great shepherd who loves me and he gave his life for me, I confess my sin to him. But listen, my sin is still forgiven. It's forgiven. It's been paid for is what I mean. I don't have to make a new sacrifice. There's no penance. I don't have to, you know, do any kind of anything. It's, it's paid for. It's forever, which is incredible. Eternal salvation. Eternal redemption. We belong to him eternally. Eternal inheritance. Saved through an eternal spirit. Instituted by an eternal covenant. These are the promises of God. Eternal. Everything we know on earth is very temporary, isn't it? It's very temporary. But everything we get from him, his promises, they're all eternal. So the author here is requesting the power of God to be present in the believer's lives. We're just insufficient without it. In 2 Corinthians 3, 5, Paul said this, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. It's all from him. If we live our lives completely relying upon his power to do his will, then our lives will result in giving glory to God. And that's how this, this wonderful benediction ends. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What is the chief end of man? There it is. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him. You were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the chief purpose of man. Boy, we, we build up all kinds of purposes, don't we? I've got this purpose and i got this. No, no, you have one purpose. One, to glorify God and enjoy him. Enjoy God. Only that we would enjoy him. We're vessels created for glory. Let his amazing power work in you to complete you. It will be well-pleasing in his sight, we're told, and it will bring him glory. Well, there's one more request and then he gives us some closing remarks. The final request is a request for perseverance in verse 22. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. Notice that he appeals to them to bear with the word of exhortation. This entire book of Hebrews is one word of exhortation. It's one sermon is what he means. An exhortation is periclesis, so it can mean a persuasive discourse, that's a, a sermon, it can mean encouragement or consolation or an admonition. And in this wonderful book, he had to say some hard things. He gave five warnings urging them not to fall away, but to persevere in the faith, didn't he? His appeal here then is to persevere um, in, in what he's told them. He's their spiritual leader. He's watching out for their souls. And they need to carefully consider, carefully consider everything he's said to them. And, and to, to make them consider that, he reminds them that I actually haven't used many words. Now, you might be thinking about our study of Hebrews and going, 45 weeks, how is it not a lot of words? But if you were to sit down today and open up the book of Hebrews and read it, you'd be finished in less than an hour. It's actually 10,000 words in the Greek. It's less than the book of Romans and the book of 1 Corinthians. It's actually not a lot of words. He says a lot of amazing things and actually a few words. This would have been read in one sitting, in completion. Now, we studied this book in less than a year. It's, it's hard to think about that. Um, but, but think about this. If they were to sit and just read this book in its whole, think about all these wonderful truths hitting them in just one go. It almost be overwhelming, right? So he is telling them to go back and consider these things and think about it, but also to bear with it. I'm sure there is one or two things that really struck a person or two. That's the way God's word works. I hear people all the time come up and say, oh, it's like you were just speaking to me or like God had that word just for me. But they're completely different things, maybe than even the main point. But that's because God's word, it doesn't return void. It's used out in everybody's life. And so he's saying, listen, if, 
God's word affected you in some way. If you've heard something, something has resonated with you. Something has, he says, and you need to bear with it. You need to persevere with it. He urges them to do that. Why? What's he concerned about? What are they likely to do? Well, if people are not willing to bear pure doctrine, if they're saying, well, that's just too, too tough, then they're going to turn away from the truth. And if you're turning away from the truth, you're turning to falsehood. You're turning to lies. You're turning to fables. Our world is based on that. If you're not following the truth, you're following a whole bunch of made-up stuff. It just boggles my mind. You go to these museums, and they just blatantly put on, oh, yeah, this is 10 million years old, and this is 50 million years old, and this is 40 I'm like, well, how do you know? I don't know. Were you there? I don't even understand. And literally, you can look at one thing. They go, oh, yeah, it's because this fossil was found in this layer. Like, oh, okay. And then you go over and you look at the fossil. Like, oh, how, how, do you know how, how, how do you know how that's old? Oh, because we found that in this layer. <laughs> I don't understand. It's just, it doesn't make any sense at all. But 2 Timothy 4, 3 to 4 says this, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. You know, there are difficult things in, in Scripture. Of course they are. But really, they're only difficult to those whose hearts are ruled by pride. I mean, when things are really tough for me to swallow, I have to recognize <laughs> there's a little pride there. There's something God wants me to work on here. People don't like the message of the Bible in its entirety. They find it offensive ultimately because it offends their pride. That is the issue. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You hear people say things like, Well, I just don't like the idea of uh, anyone else controlling my life. Probably the one I get the most. I'm not worshiping a God who makes me jump through hoops. I'll decide for myself what I can or can't do. Or I'm not listening to a God who threatens me, do this or else I'll. I'm not following a God like that. Well, people say things like this because they don't see themselves as they truly are, wretched, sinful, fallen human beings. And they don't see God in light of that. That's, it. That's what it is. I know more than God. How dare you judge me? But God is so gracious. He knows we're sinful, fallen human beings, and he could just go, Poop, well, you're, you're done, you're gone. But instead, he chose to send his son to die for us, to forgive us everything we've done so that we could know him, so we can live with him. It's incredible. And some of these Jews that this author is talking to really might have found some of these warnings really too much to bear. Oh, I just can't swallow this. And so he's exhorting them one final time to bear it, persevere through it. In fact, the word is even translated as suffer, to suffer with it. Listen, if these Jews stay with Christianity, they continue to embrace that. Remember, they've been exiled from Judaism. They no longer have a life with the friends that they've known. They cannot even go into the synagogue. They have been ostracized from the Jewish community. They've paid a big price, and some of them were saying, this is just too big of a price to pay. And so, But listen, suffer with it. Suffering will always be part of following Christ. You say, well, that isn't selling it for me, Kevin. Why, why do you say that? I say that because the world does not agree with God's word, but we embrace the truth of God's word, and we're going to ultimately suffer uh, because of that. Because we desire to be obedient to the truth, we're going to be contrary to the world, and suffering will come as a result. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The world just doesn't like, like us very much for standing up for the truth of God's word, bearing with the words of exhortation that we find in God's word. But we must do it. We must do it. And so he's telling them, listen, suffer with that. It's only for a time. But it's the truth. It's the truth of, of who you are and the truth of who I am and the truth of who God is. Why would you turn to anything else just because it's, it's easier? It'd just be a lie. So those are his requests, the things he asks of them. But finally, he has some closing remarks, and we'll cover these quickly. In verses 23 to 25, look at verse 23 first. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Now, this is a reference here to, to Timothy that we know of, who was identified with Paul. Um, 
And that's why a lot of people, because Timothy is mentioned here, think that Paul is the author because of the close relationship that they had. But it is the same Timothy who was from Lystra, who began to follow Paul on the second missionary journey. And in Acts 16.1, this is where he's introduced to us, that he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. So he had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. And, and Timothy was a companion of Paul's on many of his journeys. And we're told that um, even in Romans, when you're reading Romans, you see that he um, was a fellow worker, called a fellow worker. That's how Paul looked at him. He's my fellow, fellow worker. Um, Paul sent Timothy into many places to, uh, to speak for him. Cor- Corinth was one of those places. In 1 Corinthians 4, 17, you might remember this. He says, for this reason, I've sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere, everywhere in every church. So Timothy is actually coming to teach. He's actually coming to preach. He's going to remind you, he said, of my words. He's going to reiterate what has been taught. But it wasn't always Timothy on his own. Sometimes he was seen with several other men. In 2 Corinthians 1.19, he says this, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy. So not only did Timothy go to Corinth, but Silvanus went there as well. In fact, Silvanus is mentioned as preaching with Timothy um, in Corinth, but also mentioned together in the letter to the Thessalonians with Paul. So Timothy, as you begin to read, traveled with a lot of different guys because he was with Paul a lot. He traveled with Silas. He traveled with a guy named Erastus, Sulpater, Berea. Who are these guys? Aristarchus, Segundus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby, Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. No one's naming these guys anymore. Like the, you know, no, I don't see any Trophimuses anymore. Come on, let's get some Trophimuses. But here are all these different guys. And so um, people that look at, well, who could be the author? Some think, well, it actually could be someone like a Sylvanus or an Erastus. People who travel with Timothy, who carried the message uh, of Paul into the church. But you know what? We just don't know. We don't know. What's his point here? Well, he wants to give them, first of all, some good news about Timothy. He says, Timothy has been set free. In fact, he says, um, Timothy, our brother. So Timothy is known by the author and the church. He's our uh, brother. And he's been set free. So apparently Timothy was in prison. Now, we just don't know anything about that. We don't know how that happened. But, you know, because he accompanied Paul on so many missions, at one time he was pastoring in Ephesus. It's not surprising that he would be ending up in prison at some point. Paul certainly did. Um, but the good news here is actually twofold. One is Timothy has been released. The second is this, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. So the writer was hoping that Timothy on his release would join him and then they together would come and visit the church, which is why I don't think the author was in prison because only Timothy was released and he said he was going to come to him and then they would come and, and visit. So that's the good news he shares with them. Timothy's going to come back to you and hopefully I'll get to visit you as well. Next, he offers them a greeting, and that's in verse 24. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints and those from Italy who greet you. So this is just a, a greeting here, but what I want to focus on is what he says here about those who rule over you. We looked at that word rule, it's lead, those who lead you. Um, but he says, all those who lead you, all those. And I want to point that out because it supports the New Testament teaching of the plurality of leadership. The church was never intended to be led by one main pastor, one main person, but by a plurality of leaders. Um, That's probably contrary to what people assume or think. Maybe even people watching just assume uh, I I lead the church, but we actually um, are not structured that way. We actually are structured as a plurality of leadership. We share the leadership and the oversight of the church. Um, One of the books that we've gone through as, as elders points out that that, um, that often Jesus um, still had, in addition, while he had that plurality of leadership, he still had a few select guys that he would select for special things, Peter, James, John. Um, and so they were sort of, uh, he said, um, leaders um, uh, among equals or chief among equals or first among equals, which is a, a phrase that David Farnham likes to use. Oh, Kevin, first among equals. But he, he would use that phrase because some have a particular role, even though they equally share, that needs to remain significant. I'm the pastor of the church. This is what God has called me to do. But in oversight of the church, we actually exercise that jointly together. 
So maybe you've not known that. Maybe you haven't heard that. I certainly wanted to point that out. And this is one of the few, uh, one of the many verses, not few, um, that support this idea of a plurality of leadership in the church. Um, he also sends greetings to all the saints. Interesting. Also, he brings greetings from those from Italy. Uh, this could mean that the author was writing from Italy, uh, Rome, um, and he is sending greetings to the church wherever it's located. Um, but then we would expect it to say, oh, the churches of Italy uh, greet you, or all those from Italy greet you. That would be consistent with other things we see. Uh, he's written things like that. The churches of Asia greet you. All the brothers greet you, that kind of stuff. But it doesn't really matter. Since that's not what he says, and he only says those from Italy greet you, what it probably means is that those from Italy, um, the, uh, the author sent back their greetings to those at home. So he's, he's got some companions, uh, Italian companions with, with him. We just don't know. But let me end with, with the final thing. We've got the good news and the greetings. He, he offers one final thing, and it's just, it's just simply grace. In verse 25, grace be with you all, amen. That's such a simple, simple ending, isn't it? Grace be with you all. We're in constant need of God's grace. It's not just that grace that saved us, but we need grace every day. It's his sustaining grace. His grace will keep us from apostasy. His grace will keep us from false teaching. His grace will ultimately lead us home. We sing about that. So I would say the same to you. Grace be with you all. We need God's grace. Grace be with you as you leave today. We need it. And that's what he concludes with, and that concludes our study of Hebrews. I only want to briefly remind us of the theme of Hebrews, because I know it's been hard to remember, because it wasn't mentioned very often. <laughs> Jesus is better. <laughs> Not only is he better than all the Old Testament types that we've been looking at over the better part of, a, part of a year, but he's better than anything else you could hope to encounter in this life. He's better than anything we'd hope to replace him with. He's better than our life and our breath. He's better than anything and everything we could devise, and he deserves our worship. And we're going to close with a song that hails him as such. I'll hail the power of Jesus' name because there is no better name than Jesus. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for such a wonderful time in this book, Hebrews. And Lord, we just pray your blessing upon your people that grace would be with them as they depart today. And Lord, we just think about the wonderful message of this uh, this letter, this, this letter to the Hebrews, there's just nothing better than, than Jesus. And I just pray that if anyone just ha has, has withheld um, giving their life to you, if, if they think there's something better in their life than you, I pray that you'd open their eyes. They'd see there's just nothing. If they found you today, they'd find the greatest treasure on earth. It's Jesus. There's nothing better than Jesus and the salvation that he brings, the forgiveness of sins that we can know, the eternal life that's promised to us, through him. Uh, we love you. We praise you, Lord, for this time in your word, and we pray that you receive the glory now as we sing, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us, and let's sing this song together. Amen.